Take your Bibles and turn to X, or excuse me, Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four. We're having guests here this evening, and they're in a country that's involved in war. And you say, what led up to that war? Well, it's kind of questionable all the events that led up to that, and how things escalated to the point where you have one large country invading a smaller country is. We had one politician describe it. But uh, if you look at history and you look at uh, wars that take place, there usually is a build-up to it. In fact, uh, as you look at World War I, that uh, first war that covered uh, many parts of the globe and thus was known as the Great War when it it was happened, not World War I. They weren't looking for a second World War at that time. It was called the Great War. But what led up to the Great War? It was man's attempts to try and keep war from happening. What you had was that in in the 1870s, Germany invaded France. And as a result of that, France decided they were going to make a treaty with Russia because Russia was on the other side of Germany and thus they could keep Germany in place. Then there was a war that took place uh, in 1905, and this is when Russia fought with Japan. And as a result of this, England, who was a a friend of Japan, uh, Russia was going, well, we we need you to be on our side to help us out here. And so there was this treaty that was signed between England and France and Russia that kind of guaranteed that they would help each other out if they were ever attacked again. And you begin to look at uh, Germany, who signed some treaties with Austria-Hungary, the the, the empire that was there, and the Ottoman Turks. Uh, They signed all these documents, and the hope was that there would be no war. Little did they know that on June 28th of 1914, that the assassination of an Archduke Francis Ferdinand, leader of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, uh, by a madman... Uh, would lead to a war taking place that we know as the Great War. Things escalated quickly because in that summer, when that event took place, no one was thinking anything would happen, but there were all sorts of things that kind of fell in place where one country decided, well, you know, we need to side with this country, and then suddenly you have Austria-Hungary declaring war on certain countries, and as a result of this, it triggered other things, and eventually, by the time you get to August of that year, uh, just a month later, you have all these countries that are at war with one another. Things happened rather quickly and on a grand scale. And that's kind of what we find in Genesis chapter 4, is that you have what we would call this, the escalation of sin. Sin getting worse, sin going to a scale that was even unimaginable at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4. The story, as we look at it, it's going to be a pleasant story to start off with, but all of a sudden it's going to get worse, what started in Genesis chapter 3. You find that... You have the story, as some describe it, it's the, the couple's first episode outside of the Garden of Eden. We've been looking at the, as Genesis 2-4 describes it, the generations of heaven and earth. What are Adam and Eve doing and their descendants doing uh, and this type of thing? And Adam and Eve are no longer in the garden. They've sinned. They've been cast out of the garden. And now we have this first story of what's it going to be like with them being out of the Garden of Eden. And what you find is this was one described as a sordid account of sin's continuing encroachment on everything. For us this morning, as we look at this, so we're going to look at the, the details of the story and really come to the end and, and come with some application. 
Okay, we want to deal with the details because if we get those taken care of, then we can start dealing with the things that actually apply to us. What we're going to see in the story and what's magnified in the story is this, is that sin left unchecked will get worse and worse. Sin without hindrance will get worse and worse. As you read the story this morning already in the service, you have this first part in verses 1 and 2 of the possibilities of life. You have the story of a birth, and, and births are good occasions grand occasions for people and in this case you have uh, the story here that adam knew eve's wife and she conceived and bare cain her response was i've gotten a man from the lord and this name of cain is uh, interesting because it's the idea of gotten or obtained you're going gotten or obtained what remember what happened in the last chapter when you have all the consequences of sin handed out and you have the one consequence that was given to the serpent who was satan himself but this statement made in genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 this statement and it's god speaking i will put enmity or hatred between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What she is assuming with the naming of this son that is there, she's taking by faith the statement that, first of all, God would give life. But second of all, that she's got the one in her mind that she's thinking may be the one that will crush Satan's head. That she's gotten this and obtained this. And it's with, as you see the statement, I have gotten a man from the Lord. With the Lord's help, he's going to take care of this. This is the one that's going to solve all the problems. And so here you have this name of this one son that he's obtained, that we've gotten God's promise is really what she's describing here. The thing that we need that's going to defeat Satan. And so thus, this name Cain is given to him. I'm not sure what they were thinking with the second son. Because the second son comes along, and it says in verse number two, uh, she again bare his brother Abel. It doesn't talk about his naming. doesn't talk about any of it. You know, great expectations from the first son, not as great expectations from the second son. And you're going to find throughout the book of Genesis, there's going to be a lot of this that goes on, that mankind's going to think, okay, the first son is going to be the one who God chooses, or God wants to take the leadership, or God is going to bless. And what you're going to find is that it's kind of flipped on its head, that God's not going to use what is expected. The irony of God using Jacob rather than Esau. Or that God's going to use Isaac rather than ishmael or that god is going to use judah or joseph rather than the firstborn son of jacob it's just going to be kind of this theme that's played out and it's kind of sad in the stories you read through it here's the naming of this son i've gotten one from the lord and let me you know we have another son his name's abel you go well what's so insignificant it's a name of irony his name means breath or vanity 
It's the same word that when you get to the book of Ecclesiastes and you hear the refrain there over and over again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's like striving after the wind, trying to catch that. That's what his name is. And I don't know why they named him this, but it's going to be quite ironic because his life is going to be a breath. It's going to end unexpectedly uh, in a way that you would never have thought it would end when it came to the beginning of the story. But you, you read the story. You have two sons. Okay, here we have the, the human race beginning, the children that are promised and are, are in line here, and God seems to be at work. And so you have the possibilities here right from the beginning of the story. And the first story that we have of these children is not the first time that they walk or the first words that they say. It's the first, or it may have been the first time, we're not sure, but it's recorded for us an occasion where they come and worship God. It's a worship that's given, and as you see the, the, the statement here, you have about Abel, who's the keeper of sheep. Okay, he's one who uh, takes care of sheep, whereas you have Cain being a tiller of the ground. But it says in verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. On the other hand, you have Abel. He also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Say what's going on here. Well, the word that's used here is a word that the Israelites who would have been reading this uh, or hearing this account would have been familiar with. This is a type of offering that was given not for sin sacrifice or anything like this. This was given as a, a gift or an offering to show respect or honor. Okay, there's, there's not really the need of blood being shed here. This is a sacrifice that is basically just simply saying, I am bringing a sacrifice to God that shows him the honor and respect that he's due as to who he is. Now, you need to look at what the items were that were offered. You have Cain who brings uh, the, as it says here, um, that he brought of the fruit of the ground. Okay, he, he brings what he has been growing. But it's interesting to note, and it's not that as eventually we go through the story that his sacrifice is not accepted because he offers a grain offering. Okay, there's some that would suggest, well, he should have offered a blood sacrifice. That's what's always required. Well, look at Israel's history. Throughout their history, and in the book of Leviticus, and in the book of Deuteronomy, as you read through it, sacrifices of grain were acceptable to God. They were okay. That's not the problem with Cain's sacrifice. But you can see what's wrong with it when you find the description of how Abel's sacrifice is given. Look at the, the, the statement. Again, verse 4, Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. You go, what does the fat mean? The best parts. And he brings the best of the lambs that he has. He brings the firstlings the best ones, not the worst ones. See, in what Abel is doing, he's offering God his best. 
Whereas Cain, he's just coming and going, not the first of what he gathered, none of those things. It's just something that he goes, okay, I'm bringing this to God. You see in his actions what's kind of going on in his heart. This is something that is required by God. It seems to be something that they were supposed to be doing. But with Cain, he goes, well, I'll just give God eh, whatever I can find. Abel, on the other hand, goes, let me give the best that I can find to God, the first fruits, the best of what that is, and bring this and offer it to God. But there is an attitude that's going on here. You're going to see it eventually come out uh, when Cain uh, is coming here, but Cain is going to have an exaggerated pride. Some ways he's just simply thinking, why do I have to offer this to God? Why do I have to waste my time doing this? He's already got the problem that Satan had, that he would be like the Most High God. Cain's just kind of going, okay, well, I have to do this, but I'm really not excited about it because he really didn't see the need for it. In contrast to this, and you ought to bookmark this and mark it off in the side margin of your Bible, the Scripture does give us the attitude of Abel. If you go through your New Testament, you'll find statements about Cain and Abel and in passages you wouldn't necessarily expect. But you have one occasion where you find that Abel is in an honored position in the Scriptures, and it's in a passage that we oftentimes call the Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11, where you have the accounts of many different individuals who were known for their faith, their, their trust in God, a trust in one whom they had not seen. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, here's this statement the first person talked about in that hall of faith. Not Adam and Eve. Abel is. And it says this in Hebrews 11:4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. I mean, what he's doing is he knows who God is, and faith honors God. That's what it does, because if you believe if God does exist, he really is truly who he is, that he's worthy of the praises, you're going to act in a way that's in accordance to what you believe, what you trust in. And so what he's doing is he's offering the sacrifice as if God is really one who exists, but is also worthy of his praise because of who he is. He's moved by faith. That's proving that he's right with God. He's an individual who's in right standing before God. He makes it as the first individual in the hall of faith. And for generations, it says this, that he being dead, yet speaketh. Do you realize in the whole count of Genesis, we never find Abel ever saying a word? Even though he never spoke in that account, he is speaking to generations to come. You need to trust in this God. He really does exist. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy uh, of the honor that he's deserving of. And so his sacrifice right from the beginning is a echoes through the rest of the scripture that God's worthy of our praise, our worship. He is uh, the one who is supreme. 
And so as you look at this worship given, it's not necessarily items, but you look at Cain's, not the best, and the attitude, probably he's lifted up in pride as we see the response. And what you see in verses 5 and 6 and 7 is the challenge of God. See, what happens in some way, shape, or form that God does show that he is happy with Abel's sacrifice. It says that God had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. How he showed this, we're not told. You know, people suggested maybe fire from heaven to come and consume the offering or a light that shined upon this, or I don't know. No one knows. But in some way obvious, it's that God is pleased with the sacrifice of Abel. He sees the heart of Abel, he sees the the attitude and what is offered, and he has respect to that. He has respect and honor for the faith of Abel. But on the other hand, you see this, is that when it comes along and this happens, we don't find the, the attitude of Abel, we find the attitude of Cain. Look at what happens. He was, verse 5, very wroth, he was burning with a great fire, and he's not just merely ups, you know, disappointed and discouraged. He's mad. He's angry. And his countenance fell. You could just see it in his face and his attitude, his whole demeanor. He is upset with God. And you know what God does? God just merely goes, oh well. Going his own way. What you see in the story is the mercy and the grace of God uh, when he comes to Cain in verse number 6, and he says unto Cain, why art thou wroth? Why are you angry? And why is the countenance fallen? I mean, why are you upset? Verse 7, if thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. He's basically saying, I'm going to give you another shot here. I'm going to give you another chance and opportunity. You can offer a sacrifice as if I really am worth it. That I'm worthy of your praise. I'm worthy of your honor. That you can offer the best of your crop and come in faith and do this. I'm, you know, this is what you should be doing. I'm going to give you another chance. But if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. When he says this, you don't respond rightly to this. You're going to be taken by sin and worse sin. The word there where it says sin lieth at the door, you ought to underline it and put down croucheth at the door. Any of you that have cats know what exactly I'm talking about when you talk about crouching. This morning we had a ball of string in our house. It's now all over the house. But we have a ball of string. And what do cats do? They don't go running up to it and immediately attack it. They all get down and they they get into a crouch. And they think that, you know, whatever's there can't see them. But they, they get into this crouch. And all of a sudden they what? They don't walk over and bat the thing. They spring. They attack. And so it is, as you look at this, the Lord says, listen, you, you play with this anger and pride that you have and, and you don't put a check on this and get it right. 
what's going to happen is that there's sin it's pictured as an animal here it's going to jump on you and you're going to do things that are worse if you don't take care of it it lies at the door waiting to pounce i mean this is nice of god god's warning just saying listen if you don't take care of this it's only going to get worse take care of the sin now get it right I mean, he says this, and it's kind of a weirded, weirdly worded statement at the end, and people get confused as to what exactly it's saying. Unto thee shall his, be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. What it's basically saying here, and the, the wording is this, is that you need to get a hold of this sin and take care of it. You need to rule over it. You need to take care of it. That's what's being said there. Okay, gets a little confusing, but that's what he's saying. You need to take care of this. Take care of it now before it gets worse. Take care of the sin. So what is he calling for? He's calling for repentance. Calling for him to change his mind about what he had done before and to change his actions in line with that. And he's calling for repentance. Let's put it this way. God challenged Cain's emotional reaction and asked him a rhetorical question. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In other words, try again, Cain. Get your heart right and offer me a suitable, acceptable sacrifice that shows me that you love me for all I have done for you. Besides showing Cain the right road to have a good relationship with him, he also warns Cain of the danger of continuing to be insincere in his relationship to God. And so here you have the grace of God coming along and saying, here, you can fix this. This can be corrected. You can change your ways. You can change your actions and your attitude towards me. You can display faith. Sadly, you see in verse number eight, the first murder. There's a path that's followed. Do you realize that the New Testament talks about the way of Cain passage that you can find in jude it's only one chapter verses 8 through 11 says this jude challenging about false teachers he said these are filthy dreamers that defile the flesh despise dominion speak evil of dignities okay speak evil of god Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not what to say, bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. But then speaking of these false teachers who speak against God at times, these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally is brute beast, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, they ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. You say, who's Korah? Korah was the one who rose up against the leadership of Moses and tried to take it. The way of Cain is just simply this, going and having something that he can't rightfully have. He's angry that he can't have the blessing of God, so what he's going to do is eliminate the one who's got the blessing. He's got his own way of violence. And as you read the story, as you go through it, he rises up in anger. And you say, why? Because he had turned from love. I mean, I think about this. There's only two siblings that you can fight with. And love. 
And that's the story here. There's no one else. And yet, in this story, you find perhaps any love that Cain may have had for Abel goes out because he hates his brother. You say, I don't know whether he hated his brother or not. 1 John tells us that he did. 1 John 3 uh, says this, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was that wicked of that wicked one, and slew his brother. Wherefore he slew him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. He was mad because his brother had gotten something he hadn't gotten. And he hated his brother for it. And he is of the evil one. You go, why? Because the evil one is a murderer from the beginning. That's what John 8, 44 says when he's talking about Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning. Well, you say, when did Satan commit murder? He got the whole human race to choose death, to choose sin. Dying thou shalt die. You're going to surely die now. That's what happened when Satan got Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit. And so what do you now have? You have someone who's now physically going to do this and bring about that death even quicker and take it into their own hands. Cain is a murderer because he's following after his father, the devil. Cain kills uh, Abel because he can't get rid of God, so he kills the one that pleased God, the one that's created in the image of God. And that's what's horrible about murder is because you have something that has been created or someone that's been created to reflect who God is on this earth. Not that they're God, but to reflect what God is like. And suddenly you have someone going, I want to get rid of this. And this one that reflects the character of God... His unrighteous anger resulted uh, in trying to get an independence of God. And when you think about this death, it's not a calm death, quiet death. It's a very harsh death. You go, why is that? Because when you have the murder described later on, it's this, that the blood of Abel was crying from the ground. This was a bloody death. You have the first murder. And you see in verses 9 through 16, God coming along and confronting the sinner. He's giving him a chance. Now he comes, and, and like Adam and Eve in the garden, an investigation starts. You have a series of questions that God asks, and it's not because God is trying to figure out what's going on. God knows everything. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, beholding the evil and the good. God's not confused by what's going on. What he's trying to do is to get Cain to admit what is going on. You find here as he gets him in this investigation, verse number 9, the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? See, what he's kind of mocking here is going, wait, no, no, as a farmer, I'm responsible to keep the soil, to take care of the land, to keep that. Am I suddenly now responsible to take care of my brother? I mean, his response there is one not of, oh, I don't know where my brother's at. He's basically mocking God and going, wait, I've got a responsibility. It's taking care of the soil. I don't need to be taking care of my brother. I don't need to keep him. 
God then, verse 10, asks this, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. He doesn't get the answer that he wants from Cain because he's not repentant. Adam and Eve, at least he gets a response and gets it, we did this. And by the response later on in the story, you find that they're repentant. Cain, none of that. When he's confronted by God, he basically mocks God and goes, I'm really not responsible for this. And so God hands out the punishment. And the punishment is this, verse number 12 or verse number 11. Now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Okay, you claim to be a keeper of the soil. Guess what? The soil's not going to yield you anything anymore. That's the first thing. But the worst thing is this. Do you realize he is the first person in history to be cursed? To this point, there's only been two things that have been cursed. Satan, he was cursed. And the ground, it was cursed. But this is the first individual God goes, okay, I'm putting you under a curse. Not blessing, I'm going to give you a curse. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to wander over the face of the whole earth. You're not going to be able to find the things you need and just tilling a field and that type of thing. You're going to go from place to place to place to place trying to find means to make ends meet and you're going to live that way. You're going to be a wanderer across the face of the earth. And in this, you see the graciousness of God. What do you mean by the graciousness of God? When you read the Torah, as you read the, the law that Moses would have had, these people that would have been reading this under, a person who took the life of somebody else should what? Die. God's at least gracious that he doesn't allow him to die immediately. But in this, you find that Cain does not respond well. Verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from, the face that, uh, from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive, a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. He's going, listen, they're going to be descendants of Adam and Eve, future brothers and sisters and grandchildren, that when they find me as, well, responsible individuals, they're going to take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. They're going to kill me. I'm going to live my whole life wondering if someone's going to kill me, come after me, slay me for this. And, it's, and realize this, he's not repentant. He's not even, you know, he says, I'm going to be a fugitive from your face. Not that that really bothers him. He's just worried about the fact that he's going to perhaps have a miserable life and then be chased all over the place by people who want to kill him. And you know what God does? Something that we would never expect. God goes, okay. Here's what I'll do. Verse 15, The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Okay, I'm setting a, a promise that whoever does anything to Cain to harm his life will find that reflected back sevenfold in his own life. 
And then God does this, that you find this, that the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And people go, what's the mark that he put on him? I have no idea. And anybody that tells you what they know, or what that they know, they don't. But some way, shape, or form, God marks it out that this is one that you do not, you do not kill. In my gracious kindness, I'm protecting him. It's the graciousness of God. You find God's concern for the innocent is matched only by his care for the sinner. And you find the end of the stories you get here, it's kind of ironic. It says this, verse 16, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, which is an indicator of what he is. He is not a follower of God. He's a follower of his father, the devil. He's part of that seed, that family line, and that'll be proven out as we read uh, in the next uh, occasion that we come together to look at Genesis. But when he goes to the presence of the Lord, he dwelt in the land of Nod, the east of Eden. He goes out east, and whenever you see that in Genesis, it's not a good thing. Lot goes east to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a isn't a good thing, but he goes to the land of Nod. And you go, where's the land of Nod? No one knows. But the name is ironic because it's called the land of Nod. Nod is the word for wanderer. It's kind of wanders from place to place to place to place to place. Now we'll talk next week about the fact of him building a city. But he spends the rest of his life wandering. You say, how long you live? Long time? Perhaps don't know because relatives of his live almost a thousand years but he wandered from the face of the lord now you get done with this and you go okay that was great so what do we get out of this okay pastor we're not supposed to murder okay i think that's a given and understand this, that murder is just built up anger. Understand when the Lord talked about uh, the fact when people say, he said this, thou shalt not murder in the, the Sermon on the Mount. And people were thinking, well, I haven't done that. And he just simply said this, when you say raka to your brother, blockhead, you've committed murder. You go, why? Because it's the thought process that leads to murder. I want this person out of my way. I don't want them a part of my life. I don't want them to be there. That's the process. And so, you know, well, I've never murdered anybody. Okay? What the Lord would say, as you find in the Sermon on the Mount, you may have already murdered a person in your heart. If God had given you the green light that it's okay now, you would have taken them down. Too many times we think this, we go, I wish this person wasn't a part of my life, or I wish I had what they had, and if I could just eliminate it to have it. You've already gone down the pathway. Understand that sin croucheth at the door. There's many people that have murdered other individuals that never thought that they would ever go down that line of thinking. And that, well, that, that line of activity, but they did in their own hearts, and eventually it played out in their anger. So, I mean, I could have that as an application. But I think as we look at the text, there are several things we need to be aware of from a theological standpoint. First of all is this, is that sin, nature, is passed from generation to generation. People are born sinners. I mean, you have hope here as you read the story of Adam and Eve and you kind of go, okay, they sinned. But maybe, just maybe, Cain and Abel won't have that sin nature. They do. 
And if you think that that's just assuming things, the Scripture comments on this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. It says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Why? For that all have sinned. We live in a society that sometimes considers people that they might be generally good, they might be generally okay, that they might be good people, and you're going, no, everyone's, because we're descendants of Adam and Eve, are born sinners. We have a sin nature, and our sin may not reflect in the exact same way that Cain did towards his brother, but we lie, we cheat, we're disobedient to parents, we're selfish, self-centered, we're prideful. We're boasters, as the Scripture has, all sorts of different things that we are like. We are born sinners. You do not have to teach children how to sin. I think most words that kids figure out first is the word no, because they're doing things they should not be doing. And those are the first words that they really begin to comprehend. And you say no to them too many times as a parent, and what you're going to find is that they don't like it. They arch their backs and they yell and holler. And you go, okay, well, that's a sin nature. Yeah, that's a sin nature. We're all born sinners. And it's just reflected in the story. Adam and Eve, you're going, okay, there's hope here. Okay, maybe the, the next the generation will be okay and they're not affected by this. No, every person's a sinner. It's passed from one generation to another. We're all sinners because we are human flesh. Secondly, I need to make this statement that sin is going to get worse and worse and worse. You know, we live in pretty bad times. Well, uh, 2 Timothy 3, we just looked at this passage on Wednesday night where it talks about this, that in the last times, exceedingly perilous times shall come. And you have all sorts of things that are going on there that are all sorts of sins and it gets to be magnified more and more as we go along from generation to generation. The ability for people to murder one another has gotten a whole lot more, some people would say efficient in the, the killing process, that there, there is the, the, the ability to be able to kill large amounts of people that we've never had in human history. And you say this, sin gets worse and worse. Murders throughout history started with Cain. And even the Lord himself said, listen, it's just gotten worse and worse since then. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 51, talking to the Pharisees, the Lord says this, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, who was a priest that was murdered by people, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. He just simply acknowledged, you know what? You go right through the whole of the Old Testament from Abel to the end of your Old Testament, you're finding murder all over the pages. Murder from generation to generation. And so as you look at our world, sin is going to get worse and worse. It's just going to be that way. I thought, okay, just eating fruit in the first story, okay, that's not too bad of sin. Now you've got murder. And it's only going to be magnified as you take the line of Cain and follow it out and see what the boasting is there in the line of Cain as we look at that next week. It gets worse and worse. And so sin gets worse and worse. But thirdly, let's put this in here. That God desires repentance of sinners. Repentance from sinners. God wants us to turn from our sins. 
God wants us to recognize our sins for what they are and to get a mindset that changes from that and turns from that and goes, these are things that are causing me to be destroyed. I'm going to die physically because of these things, but ultimately I'm going to be separated from God forever because I've chosen my own path. I've done my own thing. I've gone my own way. I need to change my mind and my heart towards sin. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 makes this statement about God. It says this, The Lord's not slack concerning His promise, as men, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. Where do you go, what's the passage there? The passage is simply talking about this. It seems God has delayed some of His promises. You know, He hasn't brought the end of the world yet. He hasn't brought Him coming back. This hasn't happened yet. And some would say, well, God's just lazy about his promises. God's not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But he's long-suffering to us word. What's the idea of long-suffering? Long-suffering's got the idea that God can take in a very big breath. It's the way the Old Testament used to describe it was he was long of nostril. Not that he had a big nose, but the idea is that he could take in a large breath because you talk about someone who's short-fused, they don't have much of a breath and they immediately respond. God has the ability to be long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see that in the story. Here you have Cain. Doesn't offer the sacrifice he's supposed to, and God doesn't go, okay, that's it. No, God comes along and goes, you know, you need to change your ways. You need to change your thinking. These things need to change, and I'm giving you this opportunity to change your attitude, to turn to me with a right heart. God desires repentance. He's not up there delighting in the destruction of sinners. No, his heart is to see individuals come to know him, but come to him in repentance, and then come to him, and this is the last point, that God delights in faith. God delights in individuals that put their faith and trust in him. And you see this in the story, that here you have the story of Abel, who is in the hall of faith. You go, why? He believed that God was, and that he was really truly who he said he was. And he turned to what God, uh, in his day, what God had said and did it. You think about in our day, what God calls us to. God calls us to come to him in faith in his son there's one small statement after you get to hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 where it talks about abel's faith and he says he's got this faith that god is pleased with that he had faith in god and offered a good sacrifice you get to hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24 where the writer of hebrews is continuing to try and say what are good things in the scripture What are better things than what we have in this life? And he makes this statement. It says this, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. You know, what's being talked about there? Do you realize that even though the, the blood of Abel was shed, it didn't avail anything? But you have one who's Jesus, who died and shed his blood. 
He was taken by people who should have been ones who followed him and loyal to him. Much like Cain should have been loyal to his brother, he was taken by individuals who said, we don't want you, we want you out of our lives, you have the blessing of God, we don't want you, and they put him on a cross, and he died a bloody death. And you say, well, why was it important that he died a death of blood? Because the Scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. You see that right in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 where God has to kill an animal to give skins to cover Adam and Eve, picturing what would eventually happen through his own son who was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, that his blood would be that which could save individuals. Even in the story of Abel, you find a connection to the cross where we find that Jesus Christ has a better blood sacrifice that by the shedding of his blood, that salvation can be offered to anyone that cometh to God in faith like whom? Like Abel, who came to God in faith. And so as you read the story, you might just shake your head and go, the world's a horrible place. There is no hope. No, there is hope. God's offering it to us no change your mind about your sins your life your habits and who you are and turn to me in faith turn to me and have faith that my sacrifice is sufficient that my deeds are sufficient not your own sacrifices that are going to be sufficient your own deeds your own offerings no my sacrifice and my son is going to be sufficient for the salvation of your souls And so your God delights in faith, like he did in Abel's. And the question is, for for you is this, are you an individual who is a sinner, who recognizes your own sinfulness, and have you turned to the Savior? Have you turned to God who's saying, I want to save you. Here is my son. I offer him for you to be able to be saved. And so you see a story like this where you can shake your head at sin, but God doesn't leave it that way. No, he gives us the hope of eternal salvation in Jesus the Son. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We're all sinners like Cain. We're all sinners like Adam and Eve. And we really can't offer anything that would be pleasing in your sight. In fact, you describe our righteousness as filthy rags, the things deserving of being put in the garbage. But because you're long-suffering, you're merciful and gracious to sinners, you offer your Son. Lord, there may be one today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we... Pray that they would do that. There's no hope for them otherwise. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto you except by Jesus Christ. They've got no hope outside of Jesus Christ. So Lord, uh, today, if there's one here, may they recognize their sinfulness, but may they also see the Savior and put their faith and trust in Him. Lord, for us who are saved, that know Jesus Christ as Savior, may we realize that we're sinners saved by grace, that your Son has redeemed us, has has given us and paid the price for our sins in order to free us from our sins. 
And Lord, help us to have hearts that praise you, that you are gracious and long-suffering to us, and that we would be people that would praise you for your goodness and mercy. Lord, we thank you for all you've given to us, the abundance more than we deserve, and we praise you in the name of your Son. Amen.